Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Alaska Cast. Today we have Hannah Hill with us. She is the executive director of the Breadline and a longtime community organizer and advocate. Uh, Hannah, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Fantastic. Thanks for coming on. Um, and just to get us all started, the Breadline is a couple different programs all wrapped up in one. What exactly do you guys do? <laughs> yeah, we get that a lot because we have so many different names for our different programs. Um, the Breadline itself is an overarching umbrella nonprofit for four separate anti-hunger programs that we run here in Fairbanks, Alaska. So we have a weekly soup kitchen that we run, that Stone Soup Cafe. A lot of people know us as Stone Soup or Stone Soup Cafe. But we also have uh, a culinary job training program. We call that Stone's Throw. We also have a kids cafe, which is a monthly volunteer initiative for local families. And we run a community garden in the summertime. Fantastic. That um, all is a very important role here in the Fairbanks community. Um, is this run by volunteers? How, how does that work? Now, I'll tell you, we have a small army of volunteers that keep our programs rolling here. We have a staff of five full-time employees. We do bring someone on part-time for the garden in the summertime. But otherwise, there's just five of us. I'm, I'm the executive director here. We have a program manager for our Stone's Throw. We have an administrative coordinator who keeps us all running a tight ship here, as well as a chef instructor and production chef, same person, um, that works with Stone's Throw and some contract meals we have. And then our morning time chef with Stone Soup Cafe uh, keeps that food coming out hot every day. That's just the five of us, but we have over 200 volunteers between our programs annually. It's astonishing. We could not do what we do without people giving their time to us. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And that serves a very big need um, in a state that it seems like has kind of cut back on spending. Where, where does your funding come from? Um, we hustle hard, <laughs> largely. <laughs> but the, um, a, a bulk of it comes from individual donations, honestly. Uh, people in our community, it, I think it's incredible, give to an organization that they don't need to use, right? But understanding that anti-hunger work at this level is um, critical to people's health and well-being, you know, continued moving through the world. And we also have contract, we do a catered contract meal service for Housing First, which is a Tananoff Chiefs initiative. And that's wrapped up into our culinary job training program. So we, um, if you're familiar with Housing First, I will never not plug it. I love it. It's a harm reduction program, which helps folks that have chronic inebriation addiction issues and are also homeless get off the street uh, because nobody gets sober otherwise. And helps them then deal with mental health and addiction issues once they're in a safe space. So we do food for them, lunch and dinner, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And that's a big part of our income there. And in doing that, then we're able to utilize our students in the culinary job training program, learn about scalable food and like time bound opportunities that we have to, you know, wrap up. Like they come and pick up at four, you got to be done at four. So it's a really great way to have a real time hands on learning opportunities open and at the same time help pay for the programs that we run here. Very lovely. And we do some grant work otherwise, but uh, as you noted, there's uh, a lot less money these days in Alaska for social services like this. So if there's one rule about grants, it's that grants go away. So we don't lean on that. We do look to our community to support us and as well as the earned income opportunities that we make for ourselves. Wow. 
Okay. Um, and as an organization, the Breadline's been around for, what, 35, 36 years now? Um, can you tell us a little bit about the history yeah. about, about the organization? Sure. Happily so. Love it. So uh, um, now we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, but the Breadline itself started right here on the mean streets of Fairbanks, Alaska in 1984. And that was just some folks were out. I mean, okay, a little bit of more back history. In the early 80s, there was a major recession in Fairbanks like directly post pipeline when that closed down, there were a lot of people that, you know, came here for work and then there wasn't any uh, plus just that sort of boom and bust economy leads to a lot of folks uh, in a negative way Mm -hmm. once it's gone. So there were people in town, there were more people in town than usual that needed, that didn't have enough to eat. There weren't jobs, there wasn't money. So they're wandering around Fairbanks and some kind hearted souls that Jim and Sharon Hunter actually noted that, there were folks that were hungry in their town and they're like, not in our town. Right. So they started making sandwiches, putting them in backpacks and just going around and handing out sandwiches as they could. But the more they did that, they saw that just handing out a couple dozen sandwiches a day was not doing a dent in helping people be fed. So they connected with a local individual about town, Dick Ferris, who helped the breadline become the breadline, got into a local church started being able to use a kitchen so they went from handing out a couple dozen sandwiches Uh, if you fast forward 36 years later to us now we own our own building we're in here we're cooking hot food five days a week we serve over 100 people every day last year in 2019 we served more than 31,000 hot meals out of our soup kitchen wow that's been a quite an adventure (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that that's amazing. That's amazing. And for your um, for people that are interested in either volunteering or if someone's in need of a hot meal themselves, um, how how do, how can you get involved with that? Oh, it's easy. Um, for folks that want to volunteer, I would say just give us a call if you can. We can talk about what we have available. It is it can be a challenge for folks that have like you know regular straight jobs because uh, our meal service is from seven thirty to nine thirty in the morning, Monday through Friday. Was limiting for certain folks, but we have a lot of opportunities beyond that. So let's say give us a call. Our phone number up here is Alaska, so 907-452-1984 is our phone number, and 74 <laughs> is our phone number, and we're able to talk about what opportunities we have for people, kind of get them understanding what to expect in the mornings if they come in, or work with any of our other programs for a little more tailored experience, <laughs> I suppose. If folks are hungry, um, we are an inclusive, accessible, no barriers organization when it comes to food. We don't have requirements. We don't need to prove anything to us. We don't have work requirements. We don't have sobriety requirements. The folks are able just to come down here. That's where at 507 Gaffney Road in Fairbanks, Alaska. And that is 9.30 or 7.30 to 9.30, Monday through Friday, regardless of holiday or weather, we're here serving food. Fantastic. And for uh, one of the other sides of the coin, Stone's Throw, uh, the food service job training program. Um, what what exactly, what sort of jobs can people get trained in? Are Is there a lot of overlap between people that um, are going to the cafe as well as the job training program, or is it sort of its own little entity? It really depends on where you're at. Um, Stone's Throw is uh, it's a training opportunity for people to help people empower themselves so they can overcome their various challenges, change their own lives, through job readiness training and skills development. So it's like job training skills, but also life skills and food safety. This is all that we use culinary technical skills as um, 
sort of a lens as a way to learn life skills and other general job skills because pigeons tend to care a little less about your past. If you show up, you're sober, you're a hard worker, and you got some tools in your belt, you got places to move. There's, you know, livable wages. You can be anywhere. Everyone always needs kitchen staff, right? Mm-hmm. So this way, we're able to. Like, we don't care what <laughs> what job people go into when they're when they're done with our program, but it's just a way to talk about job skills and life skills. Because a lot of times, the people that are coming through this program are either coming out of homelessness, yeah, or overcoming addiction issues. A lot of times, people are, have been recently uh, released from incarceration. They may have um, traumatic or acquired brain injury. There's a number of things that would set you into a different life than you had been living before, or perhaps the skill sets you would learn in a certain environment are not the most appropriate for working in a regular job. So this way we're able to kind of work on interpersonal interaction and coachability, all these like skills that are really nece- necessary for success in the life force, success in the workforce. Um, some of our folks do come from that. We've had several of our students come from, uh, in the morning times, we'll come and eat in our soup kitchen, hear about our program, and get involved and thrive. But a lot of times, you have to have a certain level of organization to your life to succeed in some so because it's a 12-week, two-tier program that is Monday through Thursday for eight hours. So you have got to have a lot of ducks in a row, including and not limited to housing for yourself. As we know, being unhomed is a full-time job. Uh, making sure if you have children that like childcare is taken care of, what's your transportation? So we do a lot of work um, to get folks in like beforehand, right before they begin the program to make sure that they're really in a place to succeed. Cause we're not trying to set people up to like make it in three weeks and discover that they're not ready in the slightest. Right. So we do a lot of, um, they come in and they volunteer with us. So they're familiar with our establishment, familiar with the staff and really understand expectations of what that 12 weeks is going to look like. It's a bunch. It's heavy. Um, you got to be in a really good place to be able to rise up and actually overcome those challenges. It's a difficult situation to be in, um, to not have a home and then to, on top of that, for, for people that are, are, um, are newly homeless, what sort of, is there a path um, that's chartered by, uh, by your and partner organizations or does every journey uh, look different to kind of getting out of that situation and getting back um, on their feet? It totally depends on who a person is, where they're coming from, what's going on. We partner very closely with the Alaska Mental Health Trust Authority, with Tanana Chiefs, with Department of Labor, the Department of Vocational Rehabilitation, the Adult Learning Programs of Alaska, like all kinds of different agencies um, to try and sort out where folks are. We believe in meeting people where they're at and then we can walk forward together from there. Uh, but we got to figure out where that is first. So it can be a challenge. Um, when it comes directly to the homelessness, we don't, we're not a shelter. Mm -hmm. We just deal with food, just food access. But what we do is we know the folks that do the other things. So we try and connect people as much as possible, as much as conceivably possible. And that depends. So if someone's a vet, we can help like, arrange some veteran services if they just if they're new to town they aren't familiar with where things are transportation issues are huge in fairbanks so then it's cold outside and um you know we just have a bus system that is not the most accessible for some folks so this is also what we try and do is like give out bus passes as much as possible bus tokens so folks can actually get around to the service agencies that they can help that they can help them get over the issues that they're experiencing currently 
And that's, that's half the battle right there is just getting folks to the, like plugged into the right place. And um, yeah, then have a little bit of follow through and make sure things are working out well for them. That answer the question. I don't even know. <laughs> you did. You did. You, that did a great job. Yeah. It, it, there isn't a, a clear cut uh, one answer for, for everybody. And I think, I think you did a great job uh, answering the question. Um, how, how, just, Oh, go ahead. Well, we're lucky in this town to have things like the um, housing and homeless coalition, which is part of the um, city here in the city of Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. And that's like a great way for folks to find resources because it's just a good list. It's like, um, they do, they work with the point in time count, which is really important to actually talking to people and being like, are you homeless? How long have you been homeless? Have you been homeless this year? Why is that? What are the resources you're using? What are the resources you don't have access to? And that way we're all able to tailor what we do a little bit better um, by the day. So we're lucky to have that as a resource for us as agencies. That's big. Of course. Yeah. And, and, Kind of going back to the the four programs in the breadline, um, how does the Stone Soup Garden play into everything into into this? Is how much of the food that you that the Stone Soup Cafe serves comes from the garden? Is it more of a is it more of a sort of program to show people where the food comes from? What, what does that look like? It's kind of a different. It's a bun- It serves a lot of different purposes. One of the purposes is that just to visually have a green space in our downtown because. Um, Food access in downtown Fairbanks, I want to be careful on this because they recently changed designations that were no longer a food desert, technically. Um, but downtown Fairbanks historically has been. There's a lack of, of food available, fresh food available to folks. And this way we were able to showcase that there are ways to grow food in our community, in our urban communities uh, as much as possible. So we wanted to showcase how that was done, but also we wanted to help give um, – opportunity for folks that were otherwise maybe didn't know how to grow food or didn't have a place of their own to be able to do that. And so we connect with like master gardeners in town, come down and help us do this. Also, I'm not a farmer. I run a nonprofit. I'm not the most knowledgeable person. So we're all learning together. And we help folks like get their own bed. So we have a whole bunch of free beds for folks to use and we help them get vegetables. Uh, to put to plant and to tend to that, and that's usually like between seven to ten beds is by community members that are in need that way, and then also the rest of the beds uh, are we grow food sort of half and half. Then we have an, an ongoing eating garden is what I like to call it uh, for folks that are just in the neighborhood and are hungry, generally speaking. So early starts like beans or peas or carrots, things that pop up pretty quick, lettuces and such, uh, berries. Folks can just grab and go. You're hungry, grab a handful of peas. That's great. And then the other half of the garden tends to be more shelf-stable items, as it were. Squashes, like hard-skinned squash and potatoes for days. We do a lot of potatoes. So in total, we use we grow over 2,000 pounds of produce for the cafe. But that's not including the third of the garden that we utilize for local families. But the, my favorite part about this is, is that... Um, Living in poverty a lot of times is expensive in time, if nothing else. So mm-hmm. it can be really hard to find a little bit of extra time to do some fun gardening. So what we're able to do is we host a series of rotating volunteers. If folks have a garden bed or just want to help out, what they do is one day a week you water the entire garden. So that way people are able to have a garden, tend a garden, see it grow to fruition. 
but have a little bit of a, an assist when it comes to the day-to-day taking care of it. Also because we have this beautiful lot, which is donated by the Fairbanks Memorial Hospital Foundation, and it is nothing but sunlight. So it gets so hot over there, sometimes we have to water twice a day. And that can be hard for folks. So we're just trying to give a little bit of a lift and show folks that they can grow their own food, how to use that food. That's all part of what the garden does. Like we just have, I think, twice weekly sort of home garden parties. And then people are able to actually um, learn from master gardeners, see what the rest is doing, just kind of be together in community, trying to do better than we were before. I love the garden. It's fun. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been there in the summer, um, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful space, and it really stands out because of how, how green it is. Um, it, it, is that sort of yeah. space, is the community garden at all connected to, um, I know a lot of the school districts around town seem to have um, gardens as well, uh, where they can sell, uh, where they seem to have get kids involved in the gardening. Are there any sort of partnerships between those two programs? No, we're pretty free-floating on that ourselves, but what we do have is a really amazing, uh, like, these volunteer opportunities. So um, kids will come over a lot of times, like, if they're doing some kind of summer school program, anything like this, um, and we'll have particular days where they can come and just explore our garden and do that. But we're we're our own entity insofar as this. But we have, I mean, again, it's nothing but volunteer labor making something special for the community. So we do definitely get local kids and local schools involved, especially the um, homeschool kids. In the past, uh, Raven Homeschool has been immense in helping us with planting day and with uh, harvest day. All that is, yeah. Nice. Fantastic. And, and <laughs> I'm of, grateful for the help. Yeah. There's also a, a, a kind of a fourth pillar, a fourth program in the Breadline um, family, <laughs> the, the Kids Cafe. What is that? Kids Cafe is a riot. We just had one this last Saturday, and it was just off the chain, Kids Cafe, I'll tell you. So we started that as a program to talk with local kids about what food insecurity is and what they can do to help, really trying to get the idea of like what being a good citizen is, what being in community with people is, but also to talk about what food insecurity means here in Fairbanks on a different level than what – because on the day-to-day – you know, we serve food. We don't talk about it a lot. That sounds interesting. Like, like during the soup kitchen part of our morning time, we're not talking with people that are food insecure about why they're food insecure. We're just trying to feed them in a and normalize their experience. That's why we call it the cafe. We're not trying to be a we are a soup kitchen, but we don't want to have that vibe. We want folks to come in and have a hot meal in a safe space and feel like they're being welcomed as a guest. So, to get folks. This is like my long game, right? (laughs) What we're going to do then is talk to kids about what food insecurity is and why when you see people who are hungry, what that looks like, what that means. And that it's not always just, you know, what one comes to mind when they think of a homeless person. That's one person who's food insecure. But it's also a lot of elders who are living in assisted living facilities. They're also food insecure. Food insecure is also people who are in their schools with them. And maybe you don't know it. Maybe you don't see that. But what does that mean just to have empathy for people around you and not make assumptions based around their needs and that we can all, if we give a little bit as we can, we can take care of everybody. So that's what kids cafe is all about. It's just talking about food insecurity, talking about what we can do to make it better for people and also about how to keep our hearts open when we're doing this kind of work. Kids are the best because they're always here. They drew, they drew little cards last time all on their own. They got together and drew all these cards for our guests to find this morning and then taped them up around the cafe so people could see messages of, how loved they are. And I mean, that's what it says. Like, I love you. Right. <laughs> but kids, 
did bring a level of love that is a rare joy to see in your life. And so I love Kids Cafe for that reason. They're so motivated. They're a great group of kids to come, and it's real random. If folks are interested in, interested in coming to Kids Cafe, they can check out our website, which is uh, breadlineak.org. There's a little sign-up sheet for Kids Cafe. You fill it out so that we know the ages of kids, because also we have like age-appropriate food-related jobs we're doing, like cutting potatoes. How old are you, right? Peeling potatoes. We make sandwiches. We make cookies. We just make a lot of food to get ready for the soup kitchen the following week and talk about why we do this. Oh. That's a, that seems like a like a fantastic approach to um, a, a difficult topic for, for kids and one that isn't really talked about. Um, that kind of leads into, I guess, what, what is your background in community organization? How, how did you get involved with the Breadline? Right? Who even knows? I was thinking about that just this morning, actually. <laughs> how did I get um, in this mess? <laughs> no, I just kind of had one of those moments where I was like, oh, what a, what a path. Here we are. Huh? <laughs> I never would have saw this coming, I guess. Um, so in terms of community organizing, uh, that's just sort of how I roll broadly. Um, when I was much younger living here in Fairbanks, Alaska, I was one of the co-organizers of a free music festival called Angry Young and Poor. That is out in the Esther Park when it happens. And oh, I think, I we think I've heard of that. that. It's fun. It's, lot, it's on a hiatus right now because that is necessary. I'll tell you what. <laughs> um, but we've been running that since 2001 was the first one that we did. We did it in uh, early September 2001 was our very first Angry Young and Poor and we did it because there was like just nothing going on in this town for us as young folk right like not old enough to go to a bar or not whatever and there wasn't just this was a long time ago in Fairbanks but we didn't feel like there was anything that we wanted to do so we were like why don't we um do that let's just do the thing that we want to do and we didn't have any money and we didn't know what we were doing, and so we just fumbled our way along for several years until we really kind of hit the stride. And that felt so good to work with people uh, for a common goal, and especially when it came from a background of just not having much of anything. Like, I remember the first Angry and Poor to purchase, we wanted to have T-shirts. We'd look professional and cool. Yeah. But we all had to take our paychecks and cash them. So everyone was like, we better sell these or I'm going to be evicted. Oh, no. Quite a motivator. <laughs> you know, to sell these things is like, you know, like stupid teenagers that we were. So, like, down the road, when now we've done, you know, I don't even know, like a dozen of these, right? And we still use the same principle of starting with nothing and working our way up into something. And then with Angry Young and Poor, we would donate any proceeds we had left over to a local nonprofit. And I'd spent most of my youth in this town being angry and without really an outlet for this, like, feelings of injustice and dissatisfaction, we I would call it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so once I was able to kind of tap into something, it felt so powerful and it felt so good to do community work with my friends and to meet new people with similar interests in this way and to see how strong we were together. Because I think a lot of that you know, dumb teenage ennui I was feeling just came from feeling alone, like lonesome and people didn't have the same interests as me. And yeah. right. So everything always gets better as you're an adult, further away, you get away from your teenage years, it gets more and more awesome. And that's what exactly what happened. And then it just, this just kind of kept going. So did angry young and poor for a long time. And then I was able to step back from that, that little birdie flew on its own. And it's just been sort of a, that's how I roll anyways. I like to, be involved with things that are making a better place feels good <laughs> yeah that's wonderful we're, we're 
we're very glad that you chose Fairbanks as the community to do that in. Um, as yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> uh, you were also I think you were involved um, and you might still be involved a little bit uh, with a radio show. Um, is was that still going on? Oh yeah. Um, I've been doing some kind of, I love volunteering on my community radio. I will tell you what for. Um, I have a radio show right now that is on KWRK. That's 90.9 uh, here in Fairbanks, Alaska. And it's called Quanta Radio. M- me and my younger sister are solar system ambassadors for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is one of the more fun volunteering gigs I've ever had in my life. Oh. And anybody can do it. Anybody can be a solar system ambassador. You just fill out a very long application, take a couple trainings, and the next thing you know, you're getting cool access to solar system exploration science. And all I do is talk about it once a week on a radio show. It's the best. <laughs> Sounds like a win-win. Yeah. <laughs> what, what exactly? It's great. What, I'm just kind of a nerd about it. <laughs> it, it, is it sort of a breakdown of, of the new, is it like a, like a news update in solar science, or what does that look like? Yeah, it really depends. I mean, I, they give you complete creative control over what it is. So uh, I do try and track things that are happening directly like NASA-based science. Because there's a lot going on in the world when it comes to space science. So, But because I work for NASA, I try and keep a focus on that. So we'll talk about particular, um, particular science exploration that's happening currently, big events, or also uh, anniversaries of things that are important for us to know, like such as not limited to on Valentine's Day. It was the 30th anniversary of the pale blue dot photo, which Voyager 1 took in uh, 1990, which is it was on the other side of Neptune. It was the first time that any of our solar system, beyond solar system, now Voyager 1's extra solar system is out there on the other side of the heliosphere. Um, but it was the first time that we were able, able to turn a spacecraft around to take a picture of all the possible planets. It tried for all the planets. I think we got six wow. um, at the time. And so there's a picture of Earth back from the other side of Neptune, which is entirety of one pixel wide. And that's all of humanity right there in one little pixel. And that 30th anniversary was just on Valentine's Day. Aww. So that kind of stuff that we talked <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> and as as far yeah. as a group yeah. that you're um that you were helped start i believe and are still a little bit involved when uh the, the hurl scouts what 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 is that um, yeah. what what are the hurl scouts hurl scouts what the heck is a hurl scout is a good <laughs> question so the hurl scouts are uh, a social club for local activism that is based around a theory of intersectional feminism, which is more or less saying that everything's connected and there's no, no man is an island, more or less, right? That we all have our histories and we all have paths that interface or interact with how we interface with the world today and all of that deserves to have an amount of respect and personal agency. So the Hurl Scouts believe in self-educating about things that are happening in the community and on a broader national and global scale and just trying to do something about it. I think the byline is Hurl Scouts try, right? Like, we're not perfect. We're just trying real hard to be better than we were the day before. And to call out mom when you see it, because a lot of what, at least when, um, so I started that with Brene Baker back in, uh, it was at the Trump inauguration was really sort of an impetus for us to use this 
formless rage that was happening inside of us and be like, let's do something about it. So we pitched it to some of our friends. We're like, would you like to be in a club where we like rabble rouse and, you know, just try and make a difference? And everyone's like, yeah, let's do that. (laughs) So we did. And it really took off. People are interested and we were able to have a little bit of a platform there to talk about histories of things and also the importance of, for us, both as like, white folks it's really important for us to be able to use that leverage of our privilege to not only lift up the voices of other people but also hold ground on what is just absolute social nonsense and kind of take the brunt of that so that other folks don't have to as much anymore if that makes sense so yeah um given my job here at the soup kitchen though around that same time really ramped up like when we started this i was not the executive director here and uh well, my daddy, this just really takes up a lot of time. <laughs> so I, I stepped away, and that's uh, Brene Baker now is uh, queen in charge of that, running those platforms. But being a Hurl Scout is self-identified. You know, people decide whether or not they are a Hurl Scout, and they want to live within that ethos of just trying to be better than we were yesterday. Fantastic. Perfect. Um, and just to kind of finish us, finish everything off, one last question. Um, it seems like yeah. a bit of a turbulent time uh, looking forward into the future of Alaska, kind of looking ahead at the next 10, 20, 100 years. What do you think are the biggest challenges facing the state? Facing our state? Yes. I, mean, I would say uh, climate change is definitely one thing that we should be very concerned about up here as we continue to allow these extractive industries to come and take whatever they want out of our Arctic shores. We're damaging the planet on a larger scale, but we're also damaging our land directly as well as uh, social and spiritual lives of a lot of people who are living on the land and with the land. So if we're talking about a hundred years out, I definitely have some deep concerns about Uh, our need to engage in just transition around the ways that we do things here. Because, you know, like we talked about beforehand, there was a major economic recession that happened in Alaska that didn't really happen as badly in other places in the 80s. And that a lot of that was based around a false economy of a pipeline. I look at us being in very much the same situation now and without a just transition into more sustainable, more renewable energy sources. Not only is our planet going to be on fire, but also there's not going to be jobs up here. So we're looking at a, at a new, a relatively to get heavy with you, a relatively newly colonized space that has disrupted the life of people indigenous to Alaska. And we have no sustainable way to take care of like what we did to make what we have right now. Alaska's never been great as a, you know, as a governmental concept for having a lot of, like, forethought. So we really need to be looking down the road a little bit to see that our ice is melting, our animals are sick in different ways, our people are sick, and there are things we can do about that. Perfect. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you very much for coming (laughs) on to the program. We've been talking with Hannah Hill, the executive director of the Redline and a lifelong community advocate and organizer here in Fairbanks, Alaska. Hannah, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. The Alaska